You're listening to Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract, the official podcast of the Journal of Addiction Medicine. If this is your first time listening, thanks for coming. Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract is produced for your enjoyment and is focused on the latest journal-published research and science in the field of addiction medicine. Remember to add us to your favorites in iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at ASAMorg and Facebook. Now, let's go beyond the abstract. Welcome to Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract. I'm your host, Sean McNeil. Today we are joined by Dr. Dan Alford. Dr. Alford is a professor of medicine, assistant dean of continuing medical education, and director of the Safe and Competent Opioid Prescribing Education Program at Boston University School of Medicine. He is a general internist and director of the Clinical Addiction Research and Education Unit at Boston Medical Center. He is also medical director of the Office-Based Addiction Treatment Program, as well as Boston University's Evidence-Based Espert Student Training Program. Hello, Dr. Alfred. Welcome to the show. I'd like to begin by asking you to describe your background in research and academics. Sure. So, um... So I'm a general internist um, with a primary care practice here at Boston Medical Center, but I also do work in addiction medicine, um, mostly around the treatment of opioid use disorders in office-based settings. I'm a professor of medicine um, here at Boston University School of Medicine, but I'm also the director of the Clinical Addiction Research and Education Unit here at Boston Medical Center. That's interesting. So when did you become involved in the treatment of addiction? Yeah, so um, so after I finished my chief residency in, in 1996, I was offered a position here at Boston Medical Center in primary care, but I was also offered a position as the medical director of the Boston Public Health Commission's methadone maintenance program, which was affiliated, um, but, but on a different site. Um, with Boston Medical Center, and it was going to be, you know, a part-time position, maybe 30% time. And I went to my mentor at the time, who's still my mentor, Jeffrey Samet, who's the, right now he's the chief of our section of general internal medicine, but he also does a lot of work and has for a long time in addiction medicine, and asked him if he thought it was a good idea, and he said, absolutely, give it a try, because I was, you know, wasn't sure whether that's something that I wanted to do. Because prior to that, I really didn't have know any particular interest in addiction medicine and my experience with patients on methadone was really limited to what I was seeing during my training on the inpatient medical service and you know it was not particularly pleasant Um, these patients were um, complicated and it wasn't certainly something that I was looking to um, make a career out of but as soon as I went to the methadone clinic to start working there I fell in love with it I thought this is amazing because here are all these people who are in for treatment with an evidence-based treatment, namely methadone maintenance, who are doing really well, who I had never had exposure to during my training because the only people I was exposed to were um, patients on methadone who were not doing well, who were still using drugs and, and relapsing and ending up in the hospital with medical and surgical complications. And, and the people who were doing well are really invisible to the rest of the healthcare community because when patients interact with the general medical setting, they oftentimes won't tell you they're on something like methadone because they're afraid that they'll be treated differently or stigmatized. And so we lose the opportunity to 
to see all these people who are doing really, really well unless you're working at a methadone program. And so I became very interested in, you know, can we create some teaching opportunities for trainees, medical trainees, um, to get the experience that I just got, which was, you know, this venture into the methadone maintenance world. And um, so that kind of led my that led to my interest in addiction medicine. It led to my interest in opioid use disorders and the use of medications to treat them. And my mentor, Jeffrey Samet, said, you know, when you go there, pay attention to things that you notice that are unusual or that you think, you know, need to be addressed and in both research and education and because you'll start to get used to what you're seeing and you won't acknowledge it as novel anymore. And so the very first thing that I noticed was a patient who, who had recently been in the hospital and her acute postoperative pain was, was mistreated. I mean, she just, they stopped her methadone and she went into withdrawal and they tried to treat her postoperative pain with opioids, but they were underdosing it and it was just a disaster. And so I got very interested in the management of acute pain in patients who have an opioid use disorder and in particular who were on medications. And at that time, we really were just talking about methadone because uh, it was really before buprenorphine was available. And I realized um, that there wasn't a lot in the literature to guide practice. Um, but that, but what was in the literature were really guidelines about you should continue the methadone during the painful process and treat the person's pain on top of it. And oh, by the way, there were some experimental studies um, in patients with an opioid use disorder or with an opioid use disorder on medications, and lo and behold, they seemed to have a lower tolerance for pain. They were more sensitive to painful stimuli. So not only, you know, do they need to be you know, treated aggressively, but they needed to be treated even more aggressively because of their history of addiction. And what was really interesting to me was, you know, why was that? Was it, you know, were they born with a decreased sensitivity to pain and therefore they were at higher risk for developing an opioid use disorder? Or was it their opioid use disorder over time that changed their receptor system in a way that made them less tolerant to pain? But the bottom line is that, you know, None of these patients need to be treated for acute pain, but they need to be treated even more aggressively than others because of their history of addiction. And I think what happens is when people have a history of addiction, they actually get treated less aggressively than other people because people are afraid that, you know, somehow their addiction is going to, uh, you know, that the, the treatment of their pain is going to make their addiction worse. So that led to, you know, an article that we wrote in 2006 that, that was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine that talked about, you know, how should you treat acute pain in patients on methadone? And by that time, in 2006, buprenorphine was available. And um, so we included, you know, how to treat acute pain in patients who are on buprenorphine as well. And we talked about this whole thing about, you know, their differences in pain sensitivity and their fears about being mistreated in the hospital because of their addiction and, and how... In order to adequately treat their pain, they need to at least have that baseline opioid given to them so that their pain can then be treated on top of that. Is this making sense? Absolutely. And I think that leads up perfectly to your article here in the upcoming issue of the journal. Um, so this 
article focuses on pregnant females, and it discusses specifically pregnant females with opiate use disorder who are about to undergo a C-section. Um, this seems to add a lot of complexity to the situation, especially in regards to treating their acute pain. Um, now, the article makes mention of how there is no standard of care just yet, but the paper makes a good argument for how we should treat these patients. If you could comment yeah. a little bit on that. Yeah, so, yes, I will. So, you know, we didn't specifically go out and target this population. That is, let's study, you know, pregnant women with an opioid use disorder who are on medications to, to evaluate their pain. What happened was it was kind of a natural study where already um, in our obstetric practice, they were continuing people on their methadone and continuing them on their buprenorphine during the peripartum period, whether they had a vaginal delivery or a C-section. They were just continuing them, which was different than what was happening elsewhere in the world, around in the kind of non-OB world. Because what was happening in the non-OB world was people were starting to catch on that, yes, I should continue the methadone. Um, and even that wasn't being picked up 100%. But people in general agreed that methadone should be continued. Someone's methadone maintenance should be continued for the period, whether it be for a C-section or any other surgery. Fine. What was happening, though, was there was fear around among anesthesiologists and surgeons about keeping people on buprenorphine. And because buprenorphine, its pharmacology is different than methadone, it's a partial opioid agonist, it has a very high affinity to the receptor, and there were concerns that if someone was maintained on their buprenorphine, unlike methadone, that um, they would not be able to achieve any benefit from getting an opioid analgesic pain medication on top of it. And so what happened based on pharmacology was that the recommendations and the anesthesia world was patients need to stop buprenorphine for at least five days before surgery. And in fact, surgeries were being canceled, even at our institution, if somebody had not been off their buprenorphine for five days. And again, this wasn't based on any, any clinical um, experience or based on any research, but it was purely based on the pharmacologic the pharmacology of buprenorphine and the fear. Um, now, the problem was that you take a patient who's stable on buprenorphine for their opioid use disorder and they're going for surgery and now you destabilize them by taking them off their medication. Um, and, and although the anesthesiologists and surgeons weren't as concerned about that piece of things, because that wasn't really what they were dealing with, you know, we in the addiction medicine and addiction psychiatry and primary care worlds were very concerned about stopping people's buprenorphine. So lo and behold, you know, we had this group, the obstetricians, who were not doing that. And, you know, we, had, we ended up having nine years' worth of data to compare the gold standard, which was people on methadone being continued on their methadone and having their pain treated on top of that, with this new group of, you know, 80-some-odd individuals, women, who were maintained on their buprenorphine um, during the peripartum C-section period. And we decided to compare them to see, well, is it the same? You know, can we do, can it be as simple as it is with methadone? That is, 
don't stop medication, just continue it during the entire surgical period and treat their pain on top of it. And around the same time, there was already, you know, animal studies that were showing that that was probably very possible, that you could do that. That animal model showed that you could actually get pain relief with an opioid analgesic despite the animal being on buprenorphine. And there were some other kind of observational studies in humans that were smaller showing the same thing, that it seemed like patients did just fine when they were maintained on the buprenorphine. So in our study, you know, which is an observational retrospective study, we were able to look at a larger proportion of patients who did just that, stayed on their buprenorphine, and they seemed to do just as well as those that were continued on their methadone. So based on our study, it seems like there's no reason buprenorphine, just like there's no reason to stop the methadone perioperatively, continue it, and then just treat their pain on top of it. Um, and it's, it's pretty much that simple. And I think, you know, although these, the data that we now have is based on, like our study, which is, again, a retrospective observational study, uh, and there are other similar studies of smaller sample size, but I think when you start to put them all together, it seems to be telling the exact same story, um, which is really good for patients because stopping the buprenorphine before a surgical procedure can be a disaster for some people, for sure. Right. And you, uh, you made the point about how stopping the opiate agonist treatment will likely have a destabilizing effect. And I can only imagine that uh, in a pregnant female, the outcome is much more complicated because we're thinking about the fetus as well. Uh, did you get the sense, you know, when you mentioned obstetricians, did you get the sense they were leaving the opiate agonist on board purely out of concern for the fetus? Right. Yeah, so that's why I think um, the OB world uh, was not picking up on this five-day stopping of buprenorphine beforehand because that's exactly right. That they had this added um, issue, and that was they did not want to, um, you know, cause problems with a, um, you know, fetus during those end stages of of of, um, of the pregnancy. And so I think that's why they were more likely to be the group that would just continue to be buprenorphine. And um, so you're right. So, but, you know, the question is, you know, can these, can these results be generalized to other surgeries? And I would say probably yes. There's no reason why they shouldn't be. And, and along with, you know, the stress of someone with an opioid use disorder having their medication that they're maintained on being stopped, you know, there's also a stress of going for surgery. So you, you, you and the stress of someone with a history of addiction who's already worried and already has some distrust of the medical community that they're going to be treated poorly because of their addiction. So you've got this, you know, impending storm where the person has surgery, they're anxious about their medication that they're stable on is being stopped, and they worry that people are going to treat them differently because of their history of addiction. And so you know, all of that stuff is going to have a negative impact on their surgical, you know, their perioperative experience, for sure. So if we can just, you know, have a simple guideline out there that says, no, 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 just continue the medication, you know, continue it throughout, treat their pain like you would anybody else, but realize that because of their history of addiction, um, they may actually need higher doses and more frequent and you know, more in shorter intervals because they have an increased sensitivity to pain. So, 
if we can get that message across, um, I think these patients will be served um, better. I completely agree with that. Um, another, well, another question I had is, have you spoken to any other surgeons who have any uh, maybe anecdotal reports about outcomes uh, comparing maybe the opiate agonist uh, therapy and continuing that versus discontinuing it prior to the surgery? Yeah, so I think there's a lot of anecdotal stories out there about, you know, disasters where, you know, there was a patient who had an opiate disorder, was on buprenorphine, and they could not get on, you know, they could not control their pain. And those are kind of, you know, infrequent, but they're, they're anecdotal um, stories. And, you know, the question is, well, is it the, you know, is it the buprenorphine or is it just the person's, you know, opioid disorder and their increased sensitivity to pain. I mean, who knows? But so there, there is still a reluctance among anesthesiologists and surgeons to just continue, you know, to continue the buprenorphine because of these, you know, these case reports or these kind of anecdotal reports. And, um, you know, I think we need to continue educating them that that should not be the rule um, and that we really need to just continue, just continue the buprenorphine. And, um, you know, but I, I've worked with our surgeons, I've worked with our anesthesiologists, and we initially had to compromise. This is before our study results came out, but we had to compromise, and our compromise was that, um, that we wouldn't stop the buprenorphine five hours before surgery, but we would hold it the morning of surgery and then treat their kind of opioid debt with a different opioid like morphine or methadone while they were in the hospital. And I think that was kind of a compromise, even though I didn't think we needed to be even that complicated. But now I'm feeling even more confident that we don't need to be that complicated. And so now we've changed our policy here at Boston Medical Center where, you know, the guideline, the internal guideline is just just continue the buprenorphine during the perioperative period. And frankly, I haven't gotten any pushback and I haven't heard any you know, negative stories about what's been happening. So my feeling is that everything is going fine. Uh, but I think, you know, we've got a lot of educating to do on, on the national level. And I'm in the process of, you know, updating that 2006 article to, to say just that. Okay. Now, um, now, turning to the results from this study and looking at the primary and secondary outcomes, uh, it appears that there's not much of a difference at all, really, between the methadone and buprenorphine groups. There was the one statistically significant difference in that women treated with buprenorphine uh, seem to require, require more ketorolac postoperatively. Do you feel like that was due to the nature of the drug itself, or, or was there some other reason? Yeah, it's a little unclear. So it's, you know, it's a non-opiate, and why they required more. Um, you know, so part of the limitations of our study, right, are that it's not a randomized trial. It's and there's no control group, although I don't think we needed a control group because the comparison group was the kind of was the methadone group, which was already a standard of care. Um, but it wasn't randomized, so you know people there are various reasons why individuals would be on buprenorphine versus methadone based on their you know addiction history, based on their psychiatric comorbidities, and so they they probably are different. Um, in other ways than just being on a different medication for an opioid use disorder, which, you know, is one of the limitations of an observational study as opposed to a randomized study. And so, you know, are there reasons why women who 
opted to be on buprenorphine um, would need higher doses of an analgesic that's a non-opioid. You know, I'm not exactly sure why they would, but I think there's probably, you know, something to that. Um, but we really can't answer that, based, you know, with our study design. Um, you know, but but I think just by the nature of the study, because it's a naturalistic study, it's it's not a randomized study. The two groups will will have other differences that we are not measuring. Um, other than just being on buprenorphine and methadone. Right. And another point uh, that was brought up in the paper was uh, that due to the retrospective nature, there's really no, no way to assess the pain score retrospectively like that. So do you feel that that would have maybe added something helper or maybe that would be helpful to consider in a future study? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that this is, you know, the ideal perfect study is going to ever be done. Um but yeah, the, the ideal study would be a randomized trial where women are randomized to being assigned to a buprenorphine or methadone arm, um, and that during the peripartum period, um, their pain would be assessed using, you know, a validated kind of scoring system to assess differences in pain. Because um, again, with this being non-randomized, non-did, you know, did the nurses treat women differently if they were on methadone versus buprenorphine um, just because, you know, of whatever knowledge they had or whatever experience they had? I don't know. Um, and so, you know, we really did look at kind of a surrogate marker for pain requirements based on how much medication they got. But again, that's influenced by the interaction between the patient and the nurse. Um, the order was written, but most often it's written as kind of an as-needed, um, you know, on an as-needed basis. And so, you know, it's a complicated interaction between a patient saying, I need more pain medication, and the, um, the nurse deciding which of the medications that are written for the patient should get. And, and certainly, Ketorolac is going to be um, the first option over before the person gets an opioid. So, you know, did they have more pain, and therefore that's why they got more of the non-opioid analgesic? I don't know. It's possible. Um, but it would be nice, you know, if we had that kind of data. But on the, you know, in the clinical world, um, these measures are not systematized in a way that they're used uh, for everybody in a way that we could compare. And, you know, one of the limitations of a randomized clinical you know, is a general level to the real world when you start to you start to create a experimental design. Whereas a study like this is absolutely the real world. It's a place in the real world. And so I think you know that's one of the advantages. But you're right. It's, uh, it would it would be nice to have another kind of marker or measure for differences in pain intensity. Then what did they get? for their pain. All right. Well, I think the paper was great, and uh, I would be very interested to hear the feedback you might get from obstetricians now who are maybe looking over this study. Um, for many of them, it probably validates what they do currently, or at least exactly. what, you know, what you've mentioned exactly. that uh, some, some of them do currently in their practice, and for other, one, other obstetricians, it 
would probably be a great tool for informing them and helping them when they're scheduling surgeries, especially if they don't know much about opiate use disorders. So I think, I really think this paper has very broad implications. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. I mean, I, I would say up until, up until a year ago, I did not feel confident saying you should definitely continue buprenorphine during surgery, but now I feel very confident. And that's, you know, the message that I'm trying to get across. Um, and it's not, again, just based on our study, but it's based on the similar outcomes of all of the various studies that have been done. And ours just being the largest and over the longest period of time, but it's, you know, everything is consistent. And so I feel now very confident to recommend this. And even my patients are somewhat worried, right, because they've also heard of the the potential risk, and certainly a patient wants to make sure their pain is going to be adequately managed. And so there's even some reluctance among them to continue the buprenorphine because they're afraid. And and the ones that we, you know, and we've successfully convinced our patients now to continue with their buprenorphine, and they seem to do just, which is great. So where do you think you may focus next in terms of your research and interests? Um, I think at this point, uh, most of my interest now is on, you know, the, um, the effectiveness of educating clinicians. Um, you know, we're doing a lot of education here around safe opioid prescribing, but also in, in managing pain in patients with histories of addiction. And, um, and I'm just curious when we take these education, educational programs on the national stage, you know, how much of an impact do they actually have in changing uh, provider behavior. And so that's what I'm focusing on now. That is pretty much the dissemination of of what we know and isn't necessarily being being implemented clinically. And I'm trying to get a sense of how much impact education has on that. That sounds fantastic. Thank you so much, Dr. Alford, for speaking with us. This ends today's podcast. Thank you for listening to Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract. All of today's show links can be found in the show notes. Remember, you can preview additional abstracts at journalofaddictionmedicine.com. This program was produced by the American Society of Addiction Medicine.